0: Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.blchurch.tv. excited to be with you today. For those of you that are new, I'm Pastor Joey. We say welcome, and we're so happy that you chose to spend some time with us here today. We are in week three of a series we've been uh, going through looking at becoming. First week, we're talking about becoming one with Christ and how uh, the marriage relationship often symbolizes and does symbolize The relationship we have with Jesus Christ, just as a husband and wife become one in marriage, the goal of every Christian life is to become more one with Jesus Christ, to know him more intimately, to become like him, that our lives would not just uh, be lived with him, but that we would become like him. And uh, last week, we talked about being one with the church. So as we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, Jesus brought us together into a new family through His Holy Spirit. He's united us together in this thing we call the church. The church is not a building. The church is a people. And so we've been united into this new thing, and He's giving us this awesome privilege to worship together, to do life together, to encourage one another, and also has given us the mission to guard the unity that we have in him through the Holy Spirit. And so as we become more one with Christ, and we become more one with each other, we get to develop or we get to discover what we're going to be talking about today. In the lead up to the clip, if, how many of you have seen the movie, I Can Only Imagine?, It's an awesome story about how the most popular, arguably the most popular Christian song of all time was written, and and, uh, it's still continuing to chart today. As a matter of fact, it's been on secular radio, it's been on country radio, it's been redone by different groups, and um, it's just an amazing story uh, that is connected to this amazing song. But the lead up to the clip, if you remember, if you've seen it or if you haven't seen it, Bart lived his whole life trying to live up to the expectations and please his abusive father. His dad had been an all-star football player, and that had become his identity, and he was slated to become uh, uh, somebody important, and then his shot got taken from him, and it devastated his life. And, and that disappointment began to infect every area of his life. He slid into a depression that eventually cost him his family. His wife left, they were dysfunctional, and Bart was left to survive, really, in his father's home. And so Bart, in an effort to try to win his dad's favor began to follow in his dad's footsteps. He he began to play football. If you notice in the clip, as he's arguing with his teacher, he says, Millards play football. That's what he says. He says, Millards play football. So he had already believed at this point that his identity was wrapped up into his participation in the game of football. And so he wasn't willing to even entertain the idea of any other avenues in his life, even though he had just... Uh, experienced a career-ending injury. He, he uh, messed his knees up in football practice, and the doctor said he'd never play football again. But because he had believed that football was his identity, he had no, like, grid to even think anything else was possible for his life. That there weren't any other avenues that, that he could live out the purpose of his life. And so he's having this, this, this struggle with this opportunity. But eventually, Bart found music, or it found him. And, and over the course of time, you see how he began to pursue music, even Christian music, right? You'd think, like, that was a great thing, right? But that didn't influence his identity because still nagging in the back of his mind was this need for his father's approval. And so rather than football becoming his identity, success became his identity, and he started pursuing success even though it was channeled through something Christian, like the church or music. And so his identity was still filtered through success. And when he lost his shot or he missed his shot with the opportunity for his band to become successful, he began to spiral, downward spiral, and enter into a similar type of depression as he was thrown into all this chaos wondering, well, then who am I? If football's not my thing and now music can't be my thing, who am I? And he began to really struggle until he finally surrendered to God's will for his life. And when he did that, in this tumultuous time, his relationship with his dad became uh, restored. They, uh, his dad's life completely turned around. He gave his life to Christ, became a brand new person. They became best friends, and God had healed him. And out of that moment of surrender in his life came the writing of the song, I Can Only Imagine. One of the major struggles we have in this life, beloved, is trying to discover who we are and what we're meant to be doing with our lives. And we strive in so many different endeavors. We strive in so many different ways to discover it, to find out, who am I? What's my purpose? Why do I exist? But beloved, I'm here to tell you today, there is a difference between living for identity and living from identity. There is a difference between living for identity and living from identity. According to an article on undercoverrecruiter.com, here's what they write. They say, we derive our sense of identity from comparison with others, those we are like and those we differ from. So changing our job can change how we're seen and who we identify with. Though our, Through our work, we find an identity, and we can find status, intellectual stimulation, as well as wealth, which enables us to buy Comfort. But our work identity also drives our behavior. Every call or profession has its own characteristic persona, and that people can become identical with that persona. The professor becomes identical with his textbook. The singer becomes identical with his voice. At an extreme level, people can become subject to the role engulfment and lose all sense of themselves except as though they exist through their work. For those people, the loss of redundancy or retirement can provoke a severe identity crisis with them asking, who am I, what am I, if I don't work? And this is just one area where we struggle with identity, as we struggle with identifying with our occupations, with with the things that we do. But we can struggle with many different things. We can struggle with our relationships, you have a long-term relationship, or you could struggle with a friendship, or you can struggle with, with some type of draw or something in your life that, that you seem to have been identified with for so long, you think it's part of who you are. Many of us try to find who we are through what we do, or how we feel, or our circumstances, in our relationships, or our role in our homes. But, beloved, we have to be careful about how much stock we put into titles, because titles can become labels. And what we allow to label us influences what we think and believe about ourselves. So when a role changes, or a a label changes, or a relationship change, or there's an, an employment status change, it can be a shock to your system and sometimes even cause a season of depression. Matter of fact, a third of all retirees enter into a season of long-term depression after retirement. It's not uncommon that something you've done for 30 or 40 years that you've grown so accustomed to, when that changes overnight, you enter into a state of depression. Why? Because we've allowed what we do to define who we are. And now we don't do what we used to do We don't know what to do with our lives. We don't know what the purpose is. There is a difference between living for identity and living from identity. The Apostle Paul, one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever seen. Like we could open the book of Acts and read about all the exploits of Paul. I love Paul. His story doesn't start off so good. He starts off as the bad guy. But one encounter with Christ and he becomes a good guy. What I love about Paul is, is in the early church especially, they, they reported about miracles. And Paul was not unaccustomed to miracles. Paul was, was a bad dude. Like, I, I, thought, I think like, his confidence in God was so amazing. I think that's why God chose him. But he went toe-to-toe with a, a, a warlock one day. This guy uh, was opposing him uh, as he was trying to share the gospel with a dignitary, and the guy kept, like, trying to uh, confuse the situation, and so Paul just looks at the dude and he says, you are blind, and blind you shall go, and instantly blindness came over the man. Like, like can you imagine the anointing on his life as, as, as he is just making these declarations, and God answers Paul's de- declaration? that not just to heal blindness, but can also cause blindness. That's incredible. Paul was known in the scripture, it says he was known to do unusual miracles. So everyone else is doing miracles, which is awesome. But Paul is doing unusual miracles. Matter of fact, they would take his sweat rag and take it to where people were sick and put his sweat rag on people and they'd be healed or the demons that they were wrestling with would be cast out. That's some holy sweat. But that's awesome. This is who Paul is. And Paul, he wasn't just a Pharisee. He wasn't just a a person who was well-trained in religion and in the Jewish culture. He also had another profession. He worked as a tent maker. And so he had a trade. And in Acts chapter 20, verses 33 through 34, here's what he's, he's saying. He said, "...I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel." You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. What he's saying is, he's saying, look, you you know, wherever I went, I worked. I worked hard. I had a trade. I did my trade. I did what I needed to do to supply funds for the ministry, not just for me, but for other people. And so Paul had a trade. He had a career. He had a a job, not just as being a missionary. But you know what? At a moment's notice, when the Holy Spirit said, get up and go, he didn't think twice about leaving where he was, who he was with, what he was doing, to go do what God asked him to do. He wasn't anchored or tied down in his position. Why? Because his identity wasn't in his job or in his work. So neither was his security or his comfort. His identity and his security was in God Almighty and in Jesus Christ. So he worked for a living, but he wasn't defined by his work. In matter of fact, in the book of Philippians, he, he wrote this letter to the Church of uh, Philippi, and he gives us the formula to contentment. How many of you would like to just be content in every situation? Wouldn't that be a blessing? Wouldn't that be awesome? And Paul writes it. He says, look, I've discovered the secret. I have the secret recipe, the secret sauce to being contentment. It doesn't matter if I have a lot or if I have a little. I know what the secret sauce is. And in no uncertain terms, it's not living for identity. It's living from identity. It's letting who you are determine what you think about yourself, what you do, what's important in your life, it lets who you are gets to define everything about your life and everything going on in your life. If you're living from identity, what you do will not be so important. Who's in your life will not be so important. The impact of struggles in your relationship won't be so detrimental because your relationships and your circumstances aren't defining who you are either. Part of becoming... One with Christ and one with the church is also becoming one with your identity. Knowing, and not just intellectually, but knowing, believing, trusting in who you are. And becoming one with your identity means beginning to believe in who you are and let that influence every aspect of your life how you perceive your world, to your wants and your desires. I want to pray, and I want to invite God to come in and begin to reveal who we are in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you right now in the name of Jesus, I ask you, Lord, to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind that understands and a heart ready to believe everything that your word says. God, as we look at this simple principle, as we look at becoming one, God, I know that your desire, Jesus, you said it before your death on the cross, your prayer is that we would be one with you as you are one with the Father, that we'd be one with one another, God. And I know that what gets in the way so often are the beliefs we have about ourselves. And the things we allow to come in between, the things that we allow to define our lives, to define who we are, to drive us, God, in any situation or any direction that's in opposition to what you've said and what you've spoken. So, God, I just pray, Holy Spirit, you begin to draw us back. God, you'd you'd help us to see, to understand, and give us faith to believe that what you've spoken about us is better than anything we could decide or discern for ourselves. God, let your truth begin to set some people free this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're talking about identity. And I'm not talking about the identity you've made for yourself. Because we have made identities for ourselves. Think about the the clip with Bart. For him to say, Millards don't sing, Millards play football, what does that tell you? That tells you he's already believed something about himself that someone else put on him. Think of anything, any opportunity that's come your way and any excuse you've made not to take advantage of that opportunity, especially a God opportunity. Oh, I just can't do that. Oh, that's not for me. Oh, I wouldn't be able. Oh, I'm not as smart. I'm not as this. Anytime you say I'm not, what's that reveal? You've already believed something about you that God has not said about you. You've already believed it. You've already let something come into your life to come against the identity that Jesus has given you. There's a lot of talk about identity these days, that you can be whatever you want to be, that you can be whatever you feel like being, that you can be whatever you imagine to be. But the Bible tells us a different story. The Bible tells us that when you entered into a relationship with Jesus, your identity changed. You shed your old identity, and you took on a new identity. And Paul tells us about this new identity, what this new identity is supposed to do in us, and how it's supposed to impact our everyday lives in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Here's what Paul says, beginning in verse 1. He says, then if you've been raised with Christ, how many born-again believers do we have in the house today? You accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've been forgiven of your sins. You were baptized into his death and raised into his glorious resurrection. You've been raised with Christ, right? So you know he's talking to you. He's talking to you. And what he's about to say, he's only saying it because he knows we struggle with it. Right? I I say this all the time. God wouldn't have to tell us these things if we already just knew them and did them. But he tells us these things because we forget or we struggle. And so he reminds us about what this Christian life is all about. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek, somebody say seek, seek the things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, somebody say minds, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So, when Christ, who is your life, somebody say, your life. So, Christ is your life. When he appears, you will also appear with him in glory. So, this is for all of us, born again believers, right? He's saying to the church of Colossae, and he's saying to you and I, he said, when you said yes to Jesus Christ, you said yes to a new identity. You are a new creation. Your old life is gone your new life has come, and it's a life hidden in Christ. It's a life meant to be lived in your relationship with Jesus Christ, in through Christ. If you think about the Old Testament, often, you know, the, the priests would go into the, the holy, they would go into the holy place in the tabernacle, and they couldn't, they could only go so far, because if they were to breach the, the curtain between the holy place and the most holy place, then fire would come out of God's presence, and he would like, obliterate them. They die. And there's this, this tradition that, that uh, some scholars say doesn't have a whole lot of validity, but it, it go, it's been uh, shared for many, many years that sometimes they, they would tie a rope to the priest's ankle that was, you know, there that if something were to happen and they didn't hear from the priest, they'd tug on the rope, and if they felt dead weight, then they would know to just kind of drag them out because the person had died. They were unworthy to stand before the Lord. So if you think about the the veracity of the holiness of God and how standing before him was a fearful thing, you don't stand before God with sin in your life. You don't stand before God with grudges. You don't stand before God with impure hands and impure thoughts and impure motives. You don't stand before God with an impure heart. And so the question is, is who can stand? The psalmist writes, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? Only those with a pure heart who don't speak lies, right? The the only person that can stand before God is one who is worthy and beloved because of sin. None of us are worthy. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. But the blessing of what Christ did for us when we placed our faith and trust in Christ, is as we become clothed with Christ. His presence, his glory, wraps around us. So now we can go boldly before his throne. We can go past the veil into the inner secret place where God's presence is and have no fear. Why? Because our life is hidden with Christ. That's good. Y'all awake? Y'all awake? Like, come on think about it. Before Christ, you did. After Christ, you're alive forevermore. This is an exciting reality for who we are in Jesus Christ. Our life is hidden with Christ. And so if our old life is gone, a new life is hidden, clothed, and defined by Christ, that should inform what we seek, what we pursue in our lives. It should also define what we think about and what we dwell on what we meditate on. But the challenge that we face in this life is that we're all torn. There's a conflict. There's a battle that rages within us. We, we wrestle with this conflict. We're still trying to find our identity in earthly things and not heavenly things. We're searching this life for something to define us, to give us purpose, to make us whole. And so we then live for that identity. We work more hours. We give more time, more effort. We invest uh, more energy into these things. We, we try to uh, control our relationship situation so it doesn't fall apart. We, we live for these things so that we can have a sense of purpose in our lives. And that identity we're trying to live up to, that we're trying to immerse ourselves in in this life, gets in the way of our new identity in Christ. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus, he says, the thief who is the devil, this is the God of this world, right? He's the God of earthly things. If you think about the enemy that way, the enemy is the God of earthly things. He's the God of earthly thinking. He's the God of earthly feeling. He's the God of earthly emotions. He's the God of earthly pursuits. He's the God of earthly temptations. He is known as a thief. And what do thieves do? They steal, they kill, and they destroy. And the conflict we have is that we're trying to find identity in the realm of the thief. He's trying to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. Jesus is offering a greater life. He's offering you part of a bigger and a greater story. And so when we realize that we aren't who we used to be, Paul says then we need to set our minds not on earthly things anymore, but on heavenly things, not on what we used to think about, but now on the things that are on God's heart, on spiritual things. The word mind here in the original language means what I have on my mind, what I'm thinking of, what I set my mind upon, including my moral interest, my thoughts, my study, what I cherish as a habit of thought, what I ruminate on. That's a good word. Say ruminate 10 times fast. Ruminate. What does that mean? What I deeply meditate about. So he says, set your mind. He's like, what you meditate on, what occupies the veracity of your mental thinking, your mind, put it on the things above. Put it on what God's thinking about. The KJV, the King James Version, translates this word as your affections or your cares. Set your affections. Set what you care about on things above. So the way I think, what I feel, and what I believe as a believer in Jesus, all of these things need to now be filtered through my new identity. So that what I desire, what I'm passionate about, even what I do, is filtered through my new identity, which is rooted above, where Christ is seated, not below in our flesh. He continues in... Chapter 3, verse 5 of Colossians, he says, put to death. Somebody say, put to death. Isn't that strong language? It's not just sweep it under the rug. It's not just like, forget about it. Forget about it. No, he's like, put it to death. Kill it. Like, you don't have room for this in your life. You need to kill this thing because it's going to eat you alive. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy So we need to pay attention. What's he getting ready to say? He says, put to death what is earthly in you, right? There's this conflict. There's this draw. There's this battle waging in your life, in your spirit. And Paul is saying, you need to kill this thing in your life. And what is it? It's sexual immorality. That's the F word in the Bible, fornication. That's any type of sexual relations with somebody who's not your spouse, God designed marriage between a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, to come together to represent Jesus and his church. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality. It's fornication. He says, kill it. Impurity. Impure thoughts. Kill it. Passion. This is evil passion. This is a moral uncleanness. He's saying, kill this thing. Evil desire. This is desire for what's forbidden. How many of you... Like, just have that. Whenever you're told you can't do something or or you're not allowed to have something, something in you is just like, we'll see about that. You get one cookie. You mean five? You can only go 70 miles an hour on the highway. You mean 85? But it's evil desire. He's saying you need to kill that kill that desire for what's forbidden. Why? Because it's going to hurt you, not help you. It's going to rob you of the good things that God has for you. Oh, it's just five miles over the speed limit, Pastor Joey. And look, I'm going to be full disclosure. I'm only talking about the speed limit because I got a come to Jesus meeting here recently. I'm an, I, I've been historically in an 80 mile an hour highway driver. 70 just feels too slow. And my wife has always kind of been on me about driving crazy. And I'm like, I don't just drive crazy. I drive perfectly fine. It's everyone else that has the problem, right? Some of you relate. But she would always kind of tell me to slow down in her car and things like that. And I would begrudgingly oblige, you know. And here recently I was, I was talking to the Lord and I was, you know, really dialing into this fear of the Lord thing, which is the hatred of evil and just saying, God, whatever is in me, like, Holy Spirit, seek my heart, know my wicked thoughts, point out anything in me that offends you and lead me on the path to everlasting. I really want to have a heart that's fully surrendered to God. I'm not there yet, but I'm on my way. And the Lord started talking to me about speeding on the highway. And, and he is so gracious. He doesn't deal with everything at one time. And, and I asked him one time, I, I was like complaining to the Lord. I was like, God, Look, I have all this stuff that I struggle with. Can't we just, like, get rid of it all at once? I know you could do it. can we just, like, deal with it all at once, and then I don't have to deal with it anymore? And, And the Holy Spirit told me, he says, you couldn't handle it if I pointed all that out to you at one time. It'd destroy you. You'd be overcome. If I pointed out everything in you that was out of agreement with my will, it'd destroy you. Aren't you gracious, glad for a gracious God, and a patient God, and a merciful God? But I was having this conversation about speeding, and I hate going the speed limit. Hate it. Drives me nuts. I get anxious going slow. And the Lord said to my heart something to the effect of, that is a spirit of rebellion in you. You don't want to go the speed limit because you have a spirit of rebellion, and that's not submitted to authority. Oh. You mean I got to go the speed limit, you know? And so now I drive like an old man. (laughs) My kids and my wife think I'm weirdo. I'm like, you asked me to go slower? You got what you asked for, you know? But it's just one thing. When you process with the Lord things in your life that are out of alignment with his will, he will point them out to you. But it's for your good. Put away evil desire. What, the desire for what's forbidden. He says, and covetousness. Right? And then he says something important. He says, all of these things are idolatry. What's idolatry? That's the worship of false gods. And so he's lumping this category together. He's like, this isn't just sin. This is an issue of worship in your life. You struggle with it because you're worshiping another god here. You've put something else in my place here. And so he's Paul is saying, kill this stuff. Get rid of it, because it's idolatry. It's it's rotting away at your relationship with God. Verse 6, he goes on to say, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Look, one day, beloved, Jesus is coming back. And it's not to die for sin. It's to put to death all sin. It's to judge all sin. It's to cleanse the earth of sin for all eternity to bring the world back to the way it was originally designed in the Garden of Eden perfect with a bride with a people who would love God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength and love one another as themselves where there's no sin no crying, no pain, no shame no guilt, no condemnation there'd be nothing out of God's will but it'd be perfectly good as God is good. He's coming to judge so he can fulfill his perfect will And he's saying these things that we wrestle with, the stuff I want you to kill, it's why he's coming back. These things aren't a part of who you are and shouldn't be a part of who you are because they're idolatry. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, in these things you too once walked. Somebody say once walked. This was a part of who you were. It's not a part of who you now are. This is how you once walked when you were living in them, right? This is before Christ. This is what you did, and you didn't think twice about it. This is what you justified. This is what you celebrated. But now there should be a change of heart and a change of desire. He so said, you must put all this away. He goes on, put away anger wrath, malice, slander. Put away obscene talk from your mouth. Oh, but, you know, guys just joke around in the locker room, you know? It's just what guys do. Not children of God. Oh, but, ah, oh, just, it's just a little bit of joking. Not children of God. Don't lie to one another because you put off the old self with its practices. This is what we did. All the time when we were living in the flesh from our earthly self. This is just part of who we are, but it's not who we are now in Christ. He goes on as he's saying, this is what the old self did with his practices. Verse 10, but you've put on the new self. Somebody say the new self. I put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We we saw this in week one as the Holy Spirit, he takes us from one encounter of glory to another degree of glory. Why? To transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. So these things are getting in the way of the Spirit's work in your life to make you more and more like Christ. It's like you're being renewed in knowledge after the image of Jesus. And here there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. No longer do the labels we once have apply. Why? Because Christ is all and in all. The only label that matters to you now is Jesus Christ. He's the only label. Our old selves disconnected from God, far from God, we identified as slaves to sin. We couldn't help it. We couldn't do anything about it. But now, beloved, we have something new. We have a new nature. We have new desires, and out of those new desires come new behaviors. We set our things, our mind on things above, not on things below. We direct our affections, our pursuits on what is on God's heart. We put to death whatever the flesh desired. And now, we pursue all that God wants. When we began a relationship with Jesus, we put our old self to death and continue to partner with the Spirit to put our old self to death. You see, the truth is, as we look at these things, and and man, we struggle with a lot of stuff. And I know when I read this list, the tendency is to think, okay, now I got to do this now I gotta do this, now I gotta do this, and, and you know what, here's the truth, you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do these things in your own strength. How do I know? It's because you couldn't do it before you met Christ. These things are a work of God in you. It's a process the Bible uh, or theologians refer to as sanctification. It's the process of partnering with God so that as you submit yourself to God and His power encounters your life, His love encounters your life, His truth begins to work its way in your life, you can then find breakthrough, healing, and freedom. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. We're not alone in our effort to put these things to death. The spirit of the living God has been sent to lead us and empower us to live the Christian life. And so now, our new identity as the chosen of God, we walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And this journey of faith is one where we learn each day how to die to ourselves, how to kill our old selves, our old wants and desires, and live more and more in our new identity with Christ. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it's a, a popular verse of Scripture. It says, I beseech you, brother, therefore, that you present your bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That now even our bodies, the things that we do, are submitted to God as an act of worship. And then verse 2, he says also that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Don't be conformed to the pattern and behavior of the world, that's earthly, that's flesh. Be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So now in this Christian life, we submit our bodies to God, what we do, and we go through this process of renewal and mind transformation as we partner with God to change the way we think as we set our minds and our affections and passions on things that are above. So beloved, we're not going to pursue what we think will make us happy any longer. That's flesh. That's flesh. We pursue what will make us holy, that spirit. The goal of our lives is not happiness, it's holiness. It's setting ourselves apart for God. And when you do that, guess what you discover? Incredible joy. But as long as we're looking for happiness in this life, things to satisfy our flesh, it's going to get in the way of what God has planned and desires to pour out in our lives. So we don't pursue what makes us happy, we pursue what makes us holy. Colossians chapter 3 verse 12. He says, "Then put on as God's chosen ones." Somebody say God's chosen ones. This is your new identity. Put on the identity as God's chosen ones. Beloved, you are chosen by God. You are chosen by God. You are chosen by God. Has it clicked yet? You're chosen by God. He chose you. He chose your mess. He chose your struggle. He chose your problem. He chose your proclivity. He chose your dysfunction. He chose your family dynamic. He chose your background. He chose your future. He chose you. You're chosen by God. So put on then as God's chosen ones. Here's here's what we put on now. Here's what we live for. Here's what we pursue. Holy and beloved, because this is who you are. Put on compassionate hearts. Kindness. Humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If a person has a complaint against you, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Here's what we put on. Here's what we pursue. Here's what we seek. Here are the things we set our minds on. As the chosen of God, we need to direct our hearts toward loving God more with all we are and loving each other More than we love ourselves, we need to let this influence how we think, feel, and believe. And that we put on this love, we put on this this identity as God's chosen ones, it unites and knits us together and holds us together. And as we continue to process every day, as we pursue this with our lives, you know what we discover about the kingdom of God? We discover that the kingdom of God is not about me, it's about we. It's not about me. You see, before Christ, you know how you lived? You lived all about me. What makes me happy, what I want to do, where I want to be in five to 10 years, you know, what I want out of this relationship. You lived about me. But the kingdom of God is not about me. It's about we. It's about how God uses each and every one of us to live out his purpose and his will for our lives. So we renew our minds. We renew our affections to begin living from our new identity and as we become more and more with Christ as we become more and more one with our Savior more and more one with the church and we become more and more one with our new identity you know what we're gonna discover we're gonna discover our purpose you're gonna find out why you exist why you live and breathe why you're here this morning why you're gonna wake up tomorrow you're gonna discover your purpose Why? Because it's tied to your oneness with Jesus and your oneness with the church and your oneness with your new identity. So now, think about it this way. A clear barometer of a person's spiritual life, and and I just want to be clear. If you want to know, you know, if there are red flags that I ever come across with people to be skeptical about in the church, here's one of them. A clear barometer for the health of a person's Christian life is their dedication and their commitment to their church. Now, you can be dedicated and committed to the church and have a terrible relationship with God. That's possible. But a person who's not committed to their church, who's not engaged in, in pursuing oneness with their church, is a person who is and will struggle with their relationship with God. Oneness with the church is essential. But a key component of our relationship with God is lived out through the church. So if a person doesn't commit to the church, that's a person who's going to struggle. So the closer we are to Jesus, the more we identify as a chosen one. It'll be easier for us to walk away from the things in the world, pulling you away from his church, pulling you away from your relationship with God, and that gets in the way of what God wants you to do. Here's a a powerful verse for you to memorize and think about this week. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, we are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ Jesus to do the things he planned long ago. Beloved, every one of us have a purpose. And before God spoke light into existence, before he formed the earth and carved out the first human being with his hands out of dirt and dust... He knew you were going to be born, when you were going to be born, what you would be like, and what he planned for you to do to reveal his glory into the world. Right? He saw you before he knew you. He saw you before you were born, before you breathed life, and he said, you know what? Here's what I want to do with that one. And he's been planning this All along, He has a plan and a purpose for you. So we begin to live from identity, not for identity. And then number two, your identity fuels your purpose. There is a purpose that God has given you. And I want to show you this from Romans chapter 12, how Paul continues to show us that God has a purpose. And it's to be lived out through this new faith family that we have in the church of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he says... For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, for the grace given to me, he's been given some grace, a special grace. I say to everyone among you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment. He's saying, evaluate yourself. Evaluate yourself where you are in your spiritual life, where you really are in your journey. Maybe you're just beginning. You just accepted Christ, and you're a brand-new, brand-new spanking Christian, right? You're, like, you're bouncing in baby diapers as a Christian. This is, this is where you are. Or maybe you've been walking with God for a long time, and you're, you're the one with the cane. You've been holding up the, the church for a long time, right, in your, your spiritual journey. Be honest in your evaluation. Don't think too highly of yourself, but also don't think too lowly of yourself. Don't think too highly, like, oh, I've been down the road a long time. You know, these people have things to learn. No, 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 no. Don't worry about anybody else. Just you. Just focus on you. Think about yourself. Where are you? The word sober means I'm in my senses. To be sober-minded, I'm orderly and restrained in all the relations of life. So what he's saying is don't be irrational in your thinking. Be rational. Not deluded, but concentrated. Don't be deceived, but honestly evaluating where you are in the level of faith that you're walking in. Be honest in your evaluation. About what? About the measure of faith. Somebody say measure of faith. The measure of faith that God has assigned. Do you know that God's assigned you a measure of faith? Measure means amount. So there's an amount of faith in your life, and faith simply means trust. Generally, of the leaning of the entire human personality upon God or the Messiah, in absolute trust, confidence in His power, wisdom, and goodness. Trusting in the Lord. So your faith is connected to your level of trust. The, The amount you trust God, that's the level of faith that you have. And the more you trust his word, the more you agree with it and begin to walk it out, the more you begin to align yourself to it, the more faith you're going to have. And the more faith you have, the more grace, somebody say grace. The more faith you have, the more grace you're going to experience. Now, the word grace can also be translated as favor. So the more faith you have in your life, the more favor or grace you're going to experience. Hebrews 11.6 says, God rewards those who diligently seek him. You must believe, you must have faith, and you must seek. And the more you seek, the more he rewards. So this faith, as it grows, will also increase the favor in your life. One major area this is so evident, if you think about growing in favor, growing in grace, one area this is evident is in the area of giving. My wife and I, we made a commitment years and years and years ago to always give God our first and our best, to, to tithe our, of our finances. The word tithe just means a tenth. So you give God the first tenth of what you earn. And this is a biblical principle. We made this commitment long ago, whether we made a, a lot or we had a little. We were going to give God first. It was an act of worship. And it hasn't always been easy. And even here recently, this, this past month, there was a week where we uh, had some bills fall, and we had an unexpected payment that we didn't plan for. And so our finances were going to be really tight. But you know what we did? We tithed, right? It's like, God, you promised to bless. You promised to take care of us. We're going to do that. And so uh, I didn't know this, but the night before uh, the, the event actually happened, my wife got on her hands and knees and says, God, we need, we need a little extra cash this week. We need a little extra money because we're going to be tight. And when I went to the mailbox the next day, there were two checks. One made out to my wife, one made out to me. They gave us the cushion to make it the rest of the week. And God is always doing stuff like that. He's always coming through. But, you know, there have been times where it's been kind of a more detrimental financial situation. And God has always provided. So you know what that does for me and for us? It allows us to trust him more. And the more we trust him, guess what comes? More favor. More grace, more blessing in that area. And God works with impossible math. We we call it impossible math. It doesn't look like it makes any sense on paper, but somehow it's working. That's the way God works. He's a, a miracle working God. And so, you know, as we grow in faith in any area of our life, we'll also grow in grace. And so we all get differing differing grace and differing favor in our lives according to where we are, where our current level of faith is. And you may have more faith in an area in your life than than I do. And the grace you experience in one area might be greater than the experience I have in that area of my life. But it's a gift God's given you according to the measure of faith that you possess. The reason why we need to be sober-minded is because we have a tendency to allow our level of faith to influence our identity, and we start comparing ourselves to other people, for good or for bad. Oh, I'm more spiritual than this person. Look what God's doing in my life. Like, I healed 10 people this week. They only healed two. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm rocking it for Jesus. Or, man, look at that ministry. Look what that person is doing. I could never, I could never do that. God could never use me in that way. So It's like, you got to stay sober-minded, right? This isn't a, an opportunity for offense this isn't an opportunity for you to, to come away feeling down or 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 negative about yourself because God has a purpose specifically for you. Ephesians 4 7 says, see, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. God, blessed be his name, has given you grace. There's a grace on your life for something specific. There's a grace on your life for something specific. I want you to, I want you to get this because often we, we compare ourselves and we walk in feeling like, oh, man, I could never be like that. I could never do that. I want you to get this, right? Out of the faith you've received in your life has come a grace on your life to do the things God planned for you to do long ago, to do it accordance to the amount of faith that you have. Not to compare yourself with other people. Again, Paul says, don't compare. Don't walk with an offended heart. But see yourself for the way you are. Why? Because faith has an opportunity to grow. And as your faith grows, so can your grace. Right? But in order for faith to grow, faith has got to be tested. Faith has got to be tested. Think about Abraham. Abraham is the father of our faith. Out of Abraham came the promises for all the Messiah, the nation of Israel, the Old Testament, and the New Testament. It all can be attributed to Abraham. Even though there were some before Abraham, Abraham's like the God. You know how Abraham got in the Bible? A God God showed up, a God that they didn't really worship because his parents lived in a pagan land. His father was a pagan. God showed up and said, Abraham, I want you to move out of this place. I want you to go. Pack everything up and get going. And Abraham says, where are we going? He says, I ain't going to tell you, but I'll let you know when you get there. What? And the dude, like 70 years old, like lived his whole life, lived an entire lifetime with his family, is now in this place. They have roots, has wealth, and he gets up and goes. So God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you. A great nation. Your, your, your descendants are going to be like the sands of the seashore and the stars of the sky. The favor that God began to pour out on Abraham was incredible. Why? Because of the great faith that he expressed. But you know what? That wasn't the end of his story. There came another test. Where was an even a greater ask? You think picking up and going was great? How about sacrificing your firstborn? Sacrificing the only kid you liked. He had another one, but he didn't care for that one too much. Bible says, sacrifice your son, the only son you like. I want you to sacrifice him. And you know what he does? He goes all the way up the mountain with his son to do it. Because he believed and he trusted God. And out of that promise, sealed the deal for his entire generations for one day, the Messiah, who would be the only son to be sacrificed on a hill. The lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Opened up that whole thing. And so your faith can grow, but for your faith to grow, it's got to be tested. Luke 12, 48 says, everyone to whom much is given, much is also required. And to whom they entrusted much, they will also demand the more. So your faith can grow, beloved, but get ready to be tested. Because out of the test is produced faith or greater and greater faith. And so the people you see with greater faith, the people you see with these ministries that you aspire to, they didn't just come by it randomly. It didn't just happen to them one day. They grew into it. Like Abraham, they did something in their life that brought great favor, great grace, and they begin to grow in faith and also grow in the grace of God in their lives. And the same thing as you, wherever you're at, you've got grace in your life, and God intends to use that grace right where you are, just as you are. But it also has the opportunity to grow. In Romans 12, 4, he he continues and says that we're a body. Each of us have to be unique. We have to be different because we can't all occupy the same function. But whatever function you do have, do it to the best of your ability. He says we're one body with many members, and many members do not have all the same function. So though we are many one body in Christ and individually members of one another, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. He says let us use them. Somebody say let us use them. God intends for you to use the gifts and the grace he's given you as the church of Jesus Christ, according to who you are as the chosen and the beloved of God. He says, let us use them. If it's in prophecy, prophesy in proportion to our faith. If in service, in our serving. In the one who teaches, in teaching. The one who exhorts, in exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. So God has given you gifts. He's given you things in your life. You're not like the person next to you. Why? Because we can't all do the same thing. We can't all occupy the same function, and we're not intended to. But together, we are a whole body, and as we're all working together, walking out our purpose in our new identity in Christ, the glory of God can be revealed in the world. More personally, somebody, like in our church, somebody's got to spend the week praying and studying to teach on Sunday. Someone's got to prepare the worship service. Somebody's got to prepare to make coffee and greet people at the door. Somebody's got to prepare to teach our kids. Somebody's got to prepare to make sure the heat is on in the room whenever we gather together. Right? All, it takes all of us to do the ministry God has here. But you know what else? Some are called to pound the pavement to share the gospel with people who are not here. Some are called to do acts of, of mercy and, and be there to meet needs in the community for those who are suffering. Some are called to, to leave here and go and stand up for justice and be a voice to those who have no voice. Right? Ministry doesn't just happen here. And what has happened in the American church is we look at what happens on Sunday, that that's all there is to ministry. No, this is just part of the ministry. This is where we rejoice in what God's doing, and then we go out to fulfill our function in the world as he releases his glory to the ends of the earth. And we do it according to the favor and the grace that we have in our life. So different favor doesn't mean better or worse. It just means different gift. And God achieves His purpose through us as we use our gifts. And the way He wants to reveal His glory through us and throughout the world is walking in faith, using our gifts. And we can't do this without setting our minds on things above. Without setting our affections on the things that He cares about. About putting to death the things in this earth that get in the way of God wants us to do. Psalm eighty four ten through 11, I shared this verse with some of our teams this morning, but it says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand days elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Man, that's an awesome verse. But is it true? Some days it is. but then other days... When we get lack of sleep, we're in a rush, and the speed limit is only so high. Some days, you know. But the heart behind it. It's like I would rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather be the lowest servant in the house of God and dwell in his presence for all my days. Why? For the Lord is a sun and a shield, and he bestows favor. And honor no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly when you are putting this fleshly thing to death and you are focused on living according to who you are in Jesus Christ guess what you experience favor and the goodness of God can you feel his presence right now I can feel it and he's moving in the room he's moving in the room I believe he's calling us to something greater. He wants us to wake up to the reality of what we're invited into as, as his beloved bride. No matter where you start in your journey of faith, it's a good place to start. Like I don't care if you were smoking crack yesterday and you just gave your life to Jesus and you're here today. That's a good place to start. you got to start somewhere. But if you've known Christ for a while and, and you find yourself stuck in this lull, beloved, today's the day to wake Today's the day to arise, to start putting this thing to death that's been eating at your purpose and the identity that God has for you. Why? Because you're missing out on the goodness He's prepared for you and the glory He wants to reveal in your life. And there's a lane for you to operate. If you're not operating in your lane, in the body of Christ, the church is not as strong and as powerful as it could be. The presence of God's not as thick as He wants to pour out. Why? Because we're missing pieces. You may start out as a server in the kingdom, but over time, God wants you to grow into a leader. Wherever you begin is not where you're intended to stay. You may begin as a small giver, but you can grow into an audacious, sacrificial giver who teaches others how to walk in generosity. Wherever you start, it's just the beginning of where God is leading you and what he's planned for you to do. You might be a creative person, who begins just serving on a creative team. God wants to raise you up to teach other people to use their gifts and their talents to reveal his glory in the world. The amount of faith you begin with is not the amount of faith that, all the faith that you get. You might start off as a small group leader, leading others to use their gifts and their talents for the glory of God. But God might raise you up to start a ministry at church somewhere where no one's ever heard the gospel overseas. See, beloved, the more we become one with Christ, the more we become one with the church, the more we become one with our true identity, the more we'll grow into our purpose. We'll discover what God has for us. You think, like many years ago, I would have thought that I'd be standing here before you today. No, because years and years and years ago, I told God I'd never minister in a church. I never wanted to be. Not because I didn't think he was calling me. It's because I had seen things that my parents had gone through, things that I knew about, and I was just like, man, that seems really hard. I think I want to do something different. And so I ran from my purpose. But God's done some things in my life. And the more he's done, the more I've surrendered, the more I've said yes to God. Now I'm here. And now I've discovered what I've always meant to be, what I've always meant to do. And the same is true for you. So, where are you today, beloved? Right now, do as Paul said analyze your life, but be sober minded. Don't compare yourself to anyone else in the room or anyone you've seen online or on TV, but be honest in your evaluation of yourself. Where are you in your spiritual life, in your spiritual journey? In the tug of war between flesh and spirit, who's winning? Who's winning? What's fueling your identity today? What areas have you allowed the things of this world to come in between what God has said about you and what God wants for you. What do you need to separate so that you can set your mind on things above? Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes as we go into a time of response and the music begins to play. Be honest in your evaluation. Where are you? What's in the way of your identity? What have you allowed to creep in? Where's your level of faith? What areas of your life does your faith need to grow? With the grace that you have, are you using that grace to the best of your ability? Are you engaged? Are you connected? Are you faithful? Are you serving? Are you seeking God in the ways that you can be a light? Beloved, this year's theme for our church was focus, and I believe the Lord wants us to focus on becoming, becoming one with him, one with the church, one with our purpose, so together we can shine a bright light and hope found in Jesus. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture, and then I'm going to pray. And when I pray, I'm going to invite our prayer team to come forward with the call today is will you come and surrender those areas of your life that you've been struggling with, that have been coming against your true identity? Will you come and lay that down? Will you come and ask the Lord to begin pointing out the things in you that are are coming against what he wills for you, what he desires for you, that's robbing your attention of the things that God wants you to fix your mind on? Will you come lay down those desires that are in conflict with what the Spirit of God would have you to desire, will you come surrender your life afresh and commit your life to living up to who God said you are. You are the chosen of God. You are the beloved and holy one of God. He adores you, and he's got good plans for you. And he's ready to set the world on fire with your life. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us He gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or has covetousness or is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil." Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Heavenly Father, God, this is the cry of our heart. That we would not become one with anything else but you. Help us become one. As Jesus is in you, God, help us to be in you, to live in you, lives hidden in Christ. God, as we are growing in our relationship with you and our oneness and unity with you, as we're becoming one in this relationship, God, help us become one with one another. God, awaken us to our true identity in Jesus Christ, God, that we would begin living out our purpose, and I pray, Lord, that today faith would begin to rise in the hearts of some who have thought that they were just castaways in the kingdom. God, help them to see that it's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than live any amount of days in with the wicked. God, I pray that today we would hunger, that we would seek, and God, I pray that your presence would be poured out as as those come and lay themselves down and say, God, I've been wrestling with this. Here's the thing in my life that's been in conflict with who I'm meant to be in Christ Jesus. God, as they lay themselves down, I pray, God, that your spirit would descend upon them, Lord, and you would touch them in a powerful and miraculous way and the only way that you can. God I pray for the one who has yet to surrender their life to Christ and needs to begin a relationship with you. I pray today God they would come and they would cry out and God their forgiveness of heaven would fall and salvation would come and change this life and lead an eternal legacy for holiness and power in the name of Jesus. God I pray that that we would begin to shake off these worldly labels God and as we put on the label that you've given us as the chosen of God, holy and beloved. And I pray, God, that we would live today rooted and founded in your love, unshakable, unmovable, as lights and as ministers in the kingdom of God. So, God, we say, have your way. Holy Spirit, we say, come. As we just declare, awake, O sleeper. Lift your head. For the king of glory is here. In Jesus' name.